All right. Good morning. My name's Alex. Good to see you all with us here this morning. And so, uh, again, if this is your first time or second time here, I just want you to let you know, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you stand in relation to God and the gospel and what we believe as Christians, I want you to know that this is a place that you are welcome to belong long before you ever believe what we as Christians confess about the Lord Jesus. So I'm glad that you are with us this morning. And here at our church, we want to be very, very uh, intentional about going about making disciples of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave us the commandment to go into all the world and to make disciples. And so listen to what St. Paul had to say in Colossians 1 verse 28 uh, regarding discipleship. It says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now listen to that. Paul is not okay with just seeing people convert to follow Jesus and say, I'm going to confess Jesus, but rather that their conversion actually grows into a place of maturity. Does that make sense? That it's not okay just to go, yeah, yeah, I believe the Apostles' Creed and uh, I got baptized and now I'm going to sit on the sideline and do nothing with my faith. That's not even close to what God has called us to as Christians, but rather to grow up into maturity. And not just a few people, a few select guys and gals throughout the church, but it says three times in Colossians 1, 28, that everyone, that every last person that confesses Jesus to be their Savior would follow him as their Lord throughout the remainder of their lives. And so at Redemption, that's what we are about. We're, one of our major commitment pieces that we are as a church is we're about making disciples. And so we're about enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. Go about seeing that vision fulfilled to enjoy Jesus, love people, make disciples. In order to do that, we have to have a few foundational things that help us achieve those massive goals of enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. And so uh, what we have in place right now serving that end is that we're going to be a gospel community of worshiping, serving, theologians on mission. Like theologians. That, uh, uh, most of those are church words, then, then you hit theologians. And that one is the one that I'm going to dis- uh, discuss. I'm going to preach about today. This really isn't much of a discussion, is it? You're like, no, you're just the one talking. Okay, so theologians. Now listen, the word theologians can sound kind of strange to, to, to some people because it's oftentimes just used to refer to, honestly, nerdy white guys that hang out in a library somewhere and do Greek syntax. That's really what it's typically used in that context to talk about men that have been in seminary for 20-something years. That's okay to some degree, but those guys are not the only people that are called to be theologians. In fact, there's a guy named Karl Barth, um, and you've probably heard his name at least somewhere along the way. Uh, He actually stood up against Hitler, so that was uh, a big win in his column. Uh, and he, he discipled Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others. And, and, and Karl Barth, listen, uh, Pope Pius XII, listen to this, said this about him, that he is the greatest theologian given to the church since Aquinas. And Aquinas was in the 12th century. That's quite a gap. Karl Barth rolls on the scene, and he's an unbelievable Swiss theologian that wrote so much theology, it would just, it, it'd make your mind just kind of break. But he's, he's absolutely brilliant, and I almost brought in his church dogmatics because when you stack them up, it's about this tall, 
just a stack of books over a million pages, just like, this guy really loves theology. Now listen, I've been reading a book uh, that contains a lot of his letters, correspondence. The first letter in this book, by the way, uh, is, is him writing all his friends saying, thanks for coming to my 75th birthday party. And it's incredible. But he's got, there's a lot of letters, but whether it's to local pastors, uh, to critics that don't like him or, or whatever. And it's really interesting to get, to get to know him. But I want to read you one of his letters when he has to talk about being a theologian. Listen to what he wrote, one pastor. He says this, Dear Pastor, and this was 1968, Dear Pastor, many thanks to you for your kind letter of 18th December. It interests me to hear that you're holding a conference for non-theologians on no less than a subject than Karl Barth. I sincerely wish the very best to all who participate and who thus gather solemnly around myself and my little thoughts. How will it go with them at this no-light undertaking, as you call it? I hope in such a way that the participants will not find it dull and tedious, but will find some joy in it and even laugh a little. There's only one thing in your letter, dear pastor, that does not really please me. Namely, that you call your enterprise a conference for non-theologians. I think that if you, pastor, could impress it on your fellows and the participants, could grasp the fact that in the church of Jesus Christ, there can and should be no non-theologians, but that each man or woman, however simple, is called upon to be an even better theologian than Karl Barth, you would have understood me and my theology with friendly greetings, yours, Karl Barth. Did you catch that part? In the church of Jesus Christ, there can and should be no non-theologians. This is not a gathering to watch the pros. You can do that at the Hawks game. Go Hawks, by the way. Amen. But that's what we do when we watch the Seahawks. We gather and we watch the pros. Right. But that's not the church. The church is called to grow into maturity. Every last one of us. From the day we meet the Lord Jesus, whether you're six years old, to the last day, to the last dying breath, we're called to grow in maturity. And isn't that great news that this is not just for pros, just for the lucky few that get to go to a a seminary class or whatever, but that all of us get to walk with Jesus, that all of us get to grow in our maturity, that all of us, everyone that Paul keeps talking about that meets Jesus, this is great that God doesn't just pick one and go, you, you, I'm going to grow you, but the rest of the lot, mm-mm. that's not even close to the heart of God. That God wants all of his children close to him. And listen, when you really want to talk about what a good theologian is, it's not somebody that can parse Hebrew verbs necessarily. You know what the good theologians sound like? They're a child that spent a lot of time with their father and they know him, and they're close to him. They know what pleases him. They know what displeases him. They, they know their dad. When you think theologian, think a child in a close, intimate relationship with his or her father, because that's how the Bible describes us. We are the children of God, whom God sings over and is pleased in, day in and day out. Those end up being the best theologians. The rest are just nerds, really. All right, anyway, so I'm just kidding. Well, kind of. All right, so 
And in fact, when we think about our theology, for those who would call Redemption Church home and become you know, church members here, we really do care about this. We really do care about how you grow in your thinking about the Lord Jesus and, and God's Word. So, and in fact, when we talk about our theology, some might think, well, it, it's very impractical. It's kind of useless. But it's not. In fact, theology is very practical. Here's a really simple example. All right, so um, theologians use these words, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Like, okay, now I'm bored. Just hang with me. The communicable attributes of God are this. That it speaks to us being made in his image. That is, God shares these attributes with us, like goodness, justice, honor, rationality, and love. These are the communicable attributes. We can do these things. We can express these things. We can feel these things, though imperfectly. Okay? God shares that with us. But then there's the incommunicable attributes of God, such as his omniscience. He knows everything. Omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Omnipresence. He's everywhere. Yeah, he doesn't share that with us. And here's what we know for a fact, that every time we get the cart before the horse on this one, we go crazy. That is, if you think you can be everywhere at once, we've all tried it. It's impossible. If we think we know it all, (laughs) that also doesn't fare too well. If we think we're all powerful. So you already know this stuff. Theologians just come along and add some terminology to it. But it's something that you're already experiencing. In fact, even if you're an atheist this morning, that too is a theological position. So anyway, um, so theology defined. Here it is. Here's a simple definition of what theology is. The study of the nature of God and religious belief. Okay? So that's a classic definition. The best definition that I've come across, 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 I am from the South. Um, (laughs) They slip out every once in a while. Um, the best definition I've come across that is very clear and very succinct comes from a guy named Kevin Van Hooser. And he says this, To be a Christian theologian is to seek, speak, and show understanding of what God was doing in Christ for the sake of the world. That's what we mean by Christian theology. To seek, speak, and show what was God doing in Christ for the sake of the world. So, let's start with God. When we say God around here uh, and at our church, we're being very specific. When we say God in the city of Seattle, <laughs> it could be the flying spaghetti monster. Who's God in Seattle? So we have to define, who is God? Is, it a, is God a it, he, she, it, them, they, a force, an idea? What exactly are we talking about when we say God? Is God you? Is it me? Is God the earth? Does God inhabit every molecule of the earth? Is God a physical experience or an emotional experience? Like my wife went and uh, photoed the uh, cigarettes the other night in Capitol Hill. And she's like, that was quite an emotional experience. Like, I, I can only imagine. I was home with the kids. I we had other emotional experiences. Or is, God, or is God in the emotional experience? Yesterday we went to uh, Snoqualmie, saw the 268-foot waterfall, just in awe of it. 
And you know when you stand in, some, in front of something like that and you go, oh my gosh, and you almost get like goosebumps? You're like, that's, um, was that God? What is God? Who is he? So when we say who God is, we want to be very specific. God is in community as the Trinity. He is creator, savior, and king. So the Bible teaches us that God is a trinity, that God is in community, that God doesn't just tell human beings to be in community, but that is in and of himself or themselves who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God doesn't just say, you need others, but rather God in and of himself is a community, that God is a relational God, that he dwells in perfect, eternal, unbroken, holy, loving community. So, We're speaking of Yahweh in the Old Testament who revealed himself to Abraham and called him out to be the father of the nations, right? We're talking about the God who was revealed in the burning bush to Moses. We're talking about the God of David who slew Goliath or the God of Elijah who caused an ax head to float in the water or to send fire down from heaven. We're talking about the God of Jonah who sent a storm and a fish to save the Ninevites. We're talking about the God of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're talking about the God of the suffering Saint Job or Solomon. We're talk- this is who we're talking about. We're talking about God specifically revealed from Genesis through Malachi. That's what we're saying when we begin to talk about God. But it doesn't stop there. It, what is the definition? that The Christian seeks to speak and show who God is, what he has done in and through Christ for the sake of the world. So God is not only the God of these men, but rather we now see Jesus introduced in the gospel of Matthew. And for those of you that are maybe new to the faith, or maybe you're not a Christian, maybe even hearing that phrase in Christ might sound strange or curious to you. Like, what, what does that mean? Well, the Bible right here is getting at our identity. That is, God locates you somewhere. That you're not just located, you don't just, you're not just located in Green Lake or Ballard or Fremont or UD or Shoreline or Edmonds or where. You're not located just there, but rather, first and foremost, we're located in Christ. That's first and foremost. So no matter where you go throughout your life, no matter where you live on the earth, physically, positionally, Christian, you are in Christ. Meaning you're saved, safe, secure, beloved, justified. You're in Christ. And that phrase shows up over and over again. Just read the book of Ephesians. It shows up 27 times in Ephesians. So if Paul repeats himself once, it's okay. But 27, he's like, seriously, don't miss this. So you're in Christ. So as Christians, when we, and as Christian theologians, we don't approach the Bible as mere, as a mere textbook full of commandments and do's and don'ts and endless lists of heroes to imitate and villains to you know, dodge. Rather, we're looking for what God accomplished in and through and as the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're like me and grew up reading the Bible moralistically, look for the good guys and be like them, you end up pretty tired and confused because the good guys end up being the bad guys too in the Bible. Have you noticed that? 
Be like David who killed Goliath. Like, did you read the Bathsheba part? Killing her husband? <laughs> well, not that day. Don't be like him on that day. And it's like, okay. Well, be like Moses, the prophet of the Lord. Like, when the time he killed a guy and buried him in the sand? Well, no. Well, be like Paul, for goodness sake. Be like Paul. Saul? <laughs> the guy that persecuted the church and was locking people up? As a job? Well, no. And on and on it goes. Be like Solomon. Be wise. Like, it didn't go well for him. Like, you can just kind of keep going down the list. All the good guys need a Savior. Hence, Jesus. So, that's what we're looking for when we say to be Christian theologians here at Redemption Church. We want to know who God is, and we want to be very clear about what he has done in and through his son, the Lord Jesus. See, after the resurrection from the dead, this is what Jesus said. He said to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the whole Old Testament, God has been whispering in the ears of the prophets, I'm coming and this is what I'll look like. And then Jesus comes on the scene, dies for our sins, resurrects from the dead, and then begins to explain to the disciples, see, I'm not just on one page, I'm on every page of the Bible. It's a matter of having new lenses by which you can interpret Scripture and reality in your life. So, do you ever, do, if you don't have, here's, here's two Two translations of the Bible, and I know they're not translations, whatever, uh, that you need to have. One is the message, because it's awesome. And then, you're like, man, you're dead for that one. All right, anyway. And then the Jesus Storybook Bible. Both of those are absolutely fantastic to read. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones put it together. And it's a kid's Bible, yes. It's incredible. Listen to what she says about the Bible being more than a book of rules and more a story uh, about Jesus. Listen. The Bible is most of all an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that's come true in real life. That's great theology. You're right. Jesus is the hero because he's superior to everyone and everything mentioned in Scripture. So uh, I'm forever personally indebted to a, a pastor named Tim Keller over in New York who's opened my eyes to seeing this reality and really be able to understand how what Sally is talking about in the Jesus Storybook Bible. So to show you what God has accomplished in and through Christ, I, I, I wrote some stuff out to show you how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus surpasses Adam, who rebelled and broke fellowship with God and fell into temptation in the Garden of Eden. Jesus remained obedient and did not fail his test in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't hide from God his Father, but he prayed to him, totally submitting himself to his will and thereby bringing restoration with God to sinners. Jesus transcends Abel, who was vengefully slain. 
but who was also a sinner. Jesus remained a sinless sacrifice. Jesus is greater than Noah. That while Noah built the ark to save people from the flood, Jesus became the ark that absorbed the wrath of God, that all who would enter him would be saved. Jesus is greater than Abraham, that who offered up his son Isaac by faith. Jesus himself was offered up. Jesus, in fact, is greater than Isaac. As Isaac carried the wood to his sacrifice, Jesus himself carried the wood of Calvary on our behalf. Jesus exceeds Joseph, who after suffering at his brother's hands, was appointed to the right hand of the king of Egypt and then forgave and provided for his betrayers. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, extending grace and providing for us who betrayed him. Jesus is greater than Moses, who was a mediator between God and man. And while on earth, he gave us the law as it was given to him. Jesus lives and is our only mediator between God and man, who gave us the law of the new covenant, the law of love, not written on stones, but written with his own life. Jesus is greater than Job. And that, yes, while Job suffered, Jesus suffered as a sinless man. And just as Job's friends failed him in his final hours, Jesus' friends abandoned him. Jesus is greater than Esther. For unlike Esther, who risked her life by entering the palace before the king, Jesus freely gave his life at Pilate's palace. And on and on it goes that you start to see Scripture like this. What was God doing in Christ? Does this make sense? Okay. So Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater. That's, that's the point. And so when we say we're theologians, we're trying to get toward what was God doing in Christ. And so church, listen, if we're going to be these kinds of people that are able to actually give an answer for the faith that we have within, we first and foremost must be grounded in the actual scriptures itself. That the Bible is not just a book that we open up on Sunday and hear somebody preach out of, but the scriptures are now available to us and we ought to be opening them regularly, immersing ourselves in the word of God so as to think like God thinks to feel like God feels, and even to serve how God serves this world. It comes through spending time in the Scriptures. And so, this is what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, then all the cathedrals, Clearly, uh, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself is a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. And it is doubtful even, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. That's a pretty bold statement. <laughs> but I think he's on to something. That the church exists to bring people to faith in Christ and see them grow up. That's why the church is in the world. That's why we're here. That's why God even gives pastors to the local church. Go read Ephesians 4. What does he say? That we would grow up and that we would equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Does this make... So when we're, when we're up here preaching and teaching and serving and on and on it goes, that it, the point is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, just not watch, uh, sit on the side and just kind of watch them, guys, but rather to make disciples.
that make disciples. In Romans 12, this is how we go about doing it. Look what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when it comes to growing in our faith and being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, we do so by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And look at how he even describes it. He says literally that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That our mind needs redemption. And we do that in community. We do that in prayer. We do that in observing communion. That's what, that's what we do that by remaining in Christ and in his church. That church is something not that we just kind of get around to, but it's essential that we're a part of one another's lives so that we can be further transformed by the renewing of our mind. That within the next hour, our minds are going to be needing of renewal. In fact, we know that as soon as we walk out of church, don't we? That we constantly need our minds to be renewed. That the world is preaching another message. The culture is preaching another ideology out there. And so what we do as Christians is we stay anchored to the word of God. We stay in community and we plead with God to continue to help us think with the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what we're doing as Christians. That we can reveal what God has done in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And so that's why we're having classes like on friendship with sinners and saints. That's why we have our life groups. That's why uh, later in the fall, do three weeks on a Thursday night on on Romans, on being justified, sanctified, and glorified. We're actually going to open our Bibles and do some theology together so as to actually know what we believe and why we believe it and to be able to give a, a, a little bit more than just, well, I believe the Apostles' Creed. It's like, why do you believe the Apostles' Creed? I, I believe that Jesus was resurrected. Why was he resurrected? What does that have any implication on you? That's, that's why we're doing this kind of stuff at our church, so as to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so as to present every last member of our church mature in Christ. Uh, one theologian said it this way, that, that pastors, you can take two different approaches as a pastor. He said, picture stonemasons, two stonemasons. One guy, you walk up and go, what are you doing? He's, well, I'm making a perfectly good square stone. Okay. The other guy, working, says, what are you doing? Uh, I'm building a cathedral. Two radically different answers, both making stones, and yet one is going, no, there's something great in mind. As the church of Jesus Christ, as the saints come together, our job is to build and sharpen and shape and polish one another as we are living stones being built up for the glory of God. So as we opened this morning with Psalm 138, it says this, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. 
for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Redemption, this is why we're here. This is why we're in Seattle. It's to exalt the name of Jesus and to exalt the word of God. That's why the church is here. That's why we're here. Not just to run programs, not just to have a weekend hobby because we can't find anything else to do at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. We're here because we're here to exalt the name of Jesus for all that he has done, for all that he is, for all the glory that he deserves. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And we're here to exalt the word of God as our highest written authority that above everything else we go, Lord, even the parts of the Bible that I don't like or agree with or find confusing or frustrating, Lord, I exalt your word over mine. Lord, I exalt your word over the opinions of our critics. Lord, I exalt your word over what those people had to say to me growing up. Lord, I exalt your word over everything. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And so Christians, anchor in, dig in. God gave you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come see me. I'll get you one. You can pick whatever one you want. Get in it and stay in it. Even when David talked about it, listen, listen, we're fools for not reading it. David, even when he talked about it, what did he say? When I read your law, it's like honey on my lips. Going, I love your word. I love your word, Lord. Your word's the truest thing to me. Your word opens my heart up. Your word fills my mind. Your word gives me meaning, purpose, and direction. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Your word is a light to my path. Lift up your word in my life. That's why we're here.